0: Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I'm here with CNBC Tech Checks Deirdre Bosa. I'm also here with Jeff Richards, general partner at GGV Capital. You have heard both of these fine people on the pod before. And I got to tell you this, Debo. I know Jeff basically because of you here. And I was like, I got to get a piece of both of you guys on the pod here. This is uh, here. We're doing it.
1: Well, he is a very favorite Tech Check guest. He should come on more often than he does.
0: Well, you know, it's <laughs> funny. I say, Jeff, you know, I've said this on our pods. You've been really generous with your time over the last year since we started OK Computer. You've been on with Guy and myself on the tape. I mean, it, it's not that common when you come across somebody who spends their entire professional career investing in private companies, advising private companies who have this sort of command um, um, that you do over public markets and the other thing is like again we've been really lucky to have deirdre come on over the last month and a half or so i just love the texture that you bring from the reporting that you've been doing on cnbc i know you have a fabulous network um, out there so let's get to it um we want to hit a bunch of the stuff in the here and now in, in some of the places that you play jeff and that you've been reporting on deirdre definitely in SAS and some of the takeover activity and the premiums being paid deirdre you and i are going to go deep after jeff departs on Just that bang-up article in the Wall Street Journal about Tether, and I know you've been reporting on that stable coin for a couple of years, so we're going to get to all that. Let's get into it. You know, Qualtrics is a company, Jeff, that you've followed, I I suspect, for years when it was in the private markets, and it's had an interesting journey in the private markets and the public markets, and it looks like it's going back out. So talk to me a little bit about what's going on there, valuation, and what this kind of means for some of these enterprise software companies that, you know, saw tremendous gains in 2020, 2021, 20, even, you know, it's, it started coming apart, I guess, in late 2021. And 2023 has been a great year so far too. So now we're starting to see some activity. I'm just curious, like what this means to you. I know you've been talking about this with
2: Guy and myself, I, it seems like for more than a year. Yeah, I think this is an interesting one because, well, first of all, the headline premium to Friday's close was 6%. But if you wind back the clock to January, the the premium is about 70%. So it's a huge uptick in price for this company. And the deal's getting done at about six, six and a half times next 12 months or 2023 revenues or estimated revenues, which are forecasted to grow at about 17%. And what's interesting about that is if you look back 30, 60, six months ago, this company was trading at four times. And we all talked about how software had quote unquote gotten cheap and at some point there's a floor where private equity firms can buy these companies they think the multiples cheap they think the forecasts are probably lower than what they can achieve over the next three to five years if run well And I think this is just a good example where Silver Lake is swooping in, buying the company for, you know, a fair price. I mean, SAP bought this company, acquired the company in 2018, took it public again in 2020 and sold a big chunk of it, but still owns the majority of it. And so, you know, at some point it was probably looking to get more than its cost back on this take private. But it's also a company that's 20 years old. It was started in 2002 by Ryan Smith, who now owns the Utah Jazz, which is a pretty cool story. So it's a well-run company, always had a good reputation in the market, high quality investors when it was private. But you know, as you and I have talked about, as Jirga and I have talked about on CNBC, there is a floor for these companies. Software, private equity firms like Tomo Bravo, Fista, Silver Lake will jump in and buy these things when they get quote unquote cheap. And I think this is just another good example of that.
1: And they kind of have the feel to look at right now. It's interesting because Orlando Bravo, he, he has talked about over the last few months about there being a dislocation. What companies think their worth and what the private equity firm thinks they're worth. And did you just say that Qualtrics, it was a 6% premium from Friday, but a 70% premium from January? Is that what you said? Yeah, I was
2: trading around, I think it was trading around $10, $9.50, $10 a share in January. And the deal is at, uh, I think, $17 or $18. So it's a big jump. But, but look at, there's a ton of software companies that are up 40, 50, 60% in the last 90 days.
1: And I wonder what that has done to the CEOs or founders running those companies, because last year, those valuations came back down to earth and, you know, maybe they were dreaming of the times in 2021 where they would be worth more. And if they were going to have to do a take private deal, they would get more for it. But what have the last few months, the start of this year done when you've seen them all, these SaaS companies come back up in valuations? Do you think that that is going to make it difficult for private equity firms to do more deals because they think they're worth more again all of a sudden?
2: Well, the problem is, as you guys know, if you go down 70% and then you go up 70%, that math doesn't really, uh, it doesn't doesn't make for a one-to-one. So you have a lot of these companies, you know, if your stock went from 100 to 10 or, you know, went from 60 to 10 and then it went from 10 to 20, you feel good, but you don't feel as good as you did when it was at 60. So we still have a long way to go. And I don't think we're going to see software companies trading back at 15, 20 times like we did two years ago, particularly in a risk off environment like we have right now while the Fed is raising rates. But I think what you see, I tweeted out a chart a few weeks ago where if you go back to the 08 09 crisis. Different crisis, different time in the world, pre-zero interest rates. But if you look at what happened there, one of the charts I shared showed that it it was looking at Salesforce in particular, stock symbol CRM, and their growth rate two years went from 80% down to 20%, and then it went back to the mid-30s. People started buying the stock two quarters before that growth rebound. And so I think what you've seen a little bit of is some of the hedge funds and folks that move in and out of the market, maybe in a little more momentum trade in the early part of this year, we're sort of betting on the Fed pausing or even lowering rates in the back half of this year. And they're, they're getting ahead of that trade a quarter or two in advance. You know, TBD, a lot of people smarter than I am are speculating as to whether that'll happen or not. But that, I think, was the trade that was happening in January and February, to some extent validated by a takeout like this.
0: And, you know, Deirdre, you and I were talking about this a little bit last week about profitability in some of these companies. And, and to your point, Jeff, I mean, there's been some tremendous moves off of the lows, 50, 60% for no shortage of companies in the NASDAQ. But these companies, a lot. Them are still down 50% from their all-time highs, which doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot, but it does from a sentiment standpoint, right? And it does where companies or boards are willing to sell. And especially for a company like Qualtrics, which came out at 30, they sold stock at 42. And now you're telling me there's an 18 and a quarter deal. And you know what's interesting? And Debo, I'd love to get your take on this. I mean, this is a company that's not expected to achieve gap profitability for another few years, you know. And so when you think about that, to me, it seems like the only Buyer could be a financial buyer, not a strategic buyer, because of the dilution when you're buying a company that's that unprofitable.
1: And there has to be room to cut, right? There has to be levers that private equity feel that they can come in and pull to get to that better notion of profitability. But when you look at some of the other take privates this year or of the last year or so, sale point and a plan, these it's a certain kind of company, right, Jeff? It has to be compelling subscription revenue-wise. I thought it was interesting because earlier this year, you saw software companies start to go after that consumption-based model. And something that I was covering this morning on TechCheck was where they stand right now. And it's tough for them. There was a time when you thought, okay, you're most vulnerable if you're a subscription revenue company. And then you thought, okay, maybe it's going to be okay. Maybe that's how you actually help your customers save costs. And I think in this environment, we've never been through it. These subscription, these consumption-based business models haven't been through a softer backdrop like this. They're finding it more difficult. So would you say, Jeff, that for private equity, subscription-based revenue has been more appealing and you can't have huge losses on the balance sheet?
2: Look, the private equity playbook is not unknown. I mean, what you're going to see these guys do, they're going to cut stock-based comp. I think I remember reading when Hellman and Friedman bought Zendesk, somebody said that the stock-based comp was $300 million in the year before. Private equity firms are not going to pay the management team and the employees $300 million a year. So they cut SBC. They will, in some cases, decrease... R&D that's focused on products that might be a few years away. In some cases, they'll use their leverage, you know, the base of companies that they own to negotiate better infrastructure deals with AWS, GTP, Azure, et cetera. So they will find a way to both cut costs and make the company more profitable and ideally obviously take it public two or three years down the road but i think the the things that we love and that public investors love things like net dollar retention how strong is the customer base right but you know part of this also is if you're a management team that's running a company that's 10 15 years old and your market cap goes down by 70% you know getting back to that level just on a on a human nature standpoint that's a big mental hurdle and so i think you're just going to see some folks say gosh Maybe this is a good chance for us to either do this in private, which is what Michael Dell did with Dell and Silver Lake in an incredible transaction, or say, you know what, I'm willing to hand over the reins. You bring in a CEO and you'll see some of these private equity firms bring in folks that they know to come and run these companies. So it's an interesting time in the market. I I don't think anybody believes there's going to be a V-shaped recovery in software. I I don't think anybody's forecasting multiples suddenly going back from an average of five to 15 in 2024. So it feels like a long journey, you know, and, and by the way, this is true on the private side as well, right? Conversation we've been having with a lot of founders, this is not going to be a quick journey to an IPO or an M&A outcome. It's going to take we are back to the old days of five to 10 years to build a great company.
0: I want to hit one here because it had a big move lower last week. And Jeff, you and I have not talked about it a little bit. I think Deirdre, you and I did last week, Snowflake reported, you know, the street seemed to be pretty disappointed with the results and the guidance. And you know, it's interesting. Again, we just talked about how many dozens of, you know, NASDAQ stocks are up 30, 40, 50%. You know, this stock, it sticks out like a sore thumb because it's actually down on the year. Okay. It's down 1%. There's a 45, billion dollar market cap company expected to do maybe close to 3 billion dollars in sales this year trading close to 16 times sales there's not gap profitability for a while here, Debo, started to steal your thunder on that, but that stock, which was a huge darling, right? And it's something that, uh, you know, it just, to me, is that saying something about where we might see some of these software valuations continue to come in because this one's still fat and the underperformance is kind of glaring or will this one play catch up in your opinion? And was there anything that you saw in and around that quarter that would lead you to believe that there's going to be a path that might take a little bit longer than some might hope?
1: Jeff and I kind of did talk about this. We talked about how easy it is to cut costs at, say, a snowflake versus a sales force. And when we saw you know, Elon Musk, who tends to do these things, take that you know massive axe to their sales force spend, you thought, okay, maybe it's a little bit harder than a snowflake. And like you said, Dan, it is a darling. So it has been stickier. but I wonder if the market right now is looking for a reacceleration story. And when you look at snowflake, it's less about the bottom line because i think that they did a better job showing profitability at least on a unit economic basis if not a gap basis salesforce though kind of blew it out of the water in terms of growth and that bottom line and i wonder if in today's market environment it's enough to show cost cutting, maybe that has already been priced in. But Salesforce, Jeff, right? I mean, that growth has just come down so much. It is a deceleration story.
2: I think, you know, Snowflake is a hard one because in the venture capital community, this company was founded in 2012 and it's gonna do, I'm looking at the Goldman forecast right now, their estimate for 2023 is 2.06 billion of revenue. So for a, a company that's 11 years old to get to 2 billion of revenue is pretty incredible in the software space. But when you look at it as a, do I wanna be a new buyer of the stock? which is sort of the way you're asking it, I think it's a fair question. I think that any company that is in the consumption, the cloud software consumption environment in 2023 is gonna see headwinds. Corporate buyers, CFOs are for the first time in a few years, they're cutting heads in some cases, tech companies have been cutting heads, not all industries, which we've talked about, but they are trying to consolidate their budgets. They're trying to say, hey, do I really need 47 software providers in sales and marketing? And so anybody that's on the consumption side in the near term is probably gonna feel some headwinds. I think the bull case for Snowflake And other companies in that genre private side we have databricks but also on the infrastructure side you have companies like gitlab and hashicorp and confluent the the bulk case is is cloud consumption going to go down over the next five to ten years probably not so if you're a long duration investor you could argue when you want to be entering the name you might not need to enter it now maybe you could enter it later this year but on a five or ten year horizon it feels like a pretty good bet like salesforce was in 2008 salesforce looked expensive in 2008 and then it got really cheap and today you you know you're up quite a bit on your on your investment there it's a great company they own businesses we think of them as a as a crm software company but they obviously own businesses in a number of the places in the stack mark benioff one of the great ceos i think to some extent they had sort of pre wired the street to have low expectations and then sort of came out with this number that was growth in the teens and everybody was like yay um but you know he's he's got a great organization they've got distribution you know if you think about microsoft google the companies that have distribution they've got distribution sap ServiceNow. These are companies that can go in and sell additional products into their existing customer base because they trust them. They know they're going to deliver high quality products. I think the challenge is just at some point, you know, you do have to innovate. You have to come up with new products and services. You can't just raise price. Salesforce has been raising price for quite some time.
0: Well, that's the other thing. I mean, Salesforce just smacks to me of, you know, looking back 20 years ago at Cisco it, it, or Oracle. It's just, it's just a big roll up right now, right? And so, like the one of the big stories with Oracle when it underperformed in Cisco, you know, the NASDAQ, let's call it after retail taken its highs from 2000 those stocks lagged for a very long time there was no organic growth there but here's one Debo and it wouldn't be okay computer if we weren't going to talk about Elon Musk like at least two ways and you flagged this one this was a story in the information talking about how Elon Musk again in his efforts to cut costs but he was delaying payments to AWS to the tune of you know 70 million dollars and then the story goes on to say well AWS which is an advertiser on the Twitter they were refusing to pay those bills and so it just seems like again for years we used to hear this sort of stuff with businesses you know whether it was tesla and delaying these sorts of payments and listen that company many instances over the last 10 years was in very dire situations so maybe he's very comfortable with being at the helm of twitter the difference here is that he is on the hook he is on the hook for the 13 billion dollars in debt this was not you know a, a publicly traded company where every year since tesla went public in 2010 they did capital raises that's how you fund this sort of these sorts of operations in good Times and bad. So talk to me a little bit about what you think this means. Tesla is not trading particularly well. And, you know, when you think about, you know, the news that we keep hearing out of the Twitter, Twitter broke today. It was down for a bit and it was like there was one, <laughs> there was a single point of failure. So talk to me, Debo, you know, because
1: I started this morning talking about Musk and Twitter and this sort of grand experiment that I think a lot of other CEOs are watching. How much can you cut? And I said, how much can you cut? At least he's managed to keep the lights on. Well, that actually (laughs) may not have been the case today because as soon as after I said that, there was that glitch. People on TweetDeck couldn't access. So there's been these bumps all along the way, but it is sort of this grand experiment. How much can you cut and get away with? And In the case of the latest cut, which affects his bill at Amazon Web Services, his cloud computing bill, pretty essential part of the business, not just as their cloud provider, but as an advertiser as well. Amazon advertises on Twitter. So if Elon Musk doesn't pay his AWS bill... Amazon can turn around and say, we're not going to pay our advertising bill. And that gets at the fundamental problem with Twitter right now. I think it was the journal that just reported that you saw sales and earnings down 40% in the month of December, year over year. So sure, you can keep the lights on, but does it continue to be a good business. And I guess that's what everyone's trying to figure out. You've got the Tesla example. You don't want to bet against Elon Musk. Um, But Twitter, of course, as we've talked about, Dan and, and Jeff, is a very different beast. You need people, you need your engineers, you need to probably pay your bills. I don't know. Sounds like an important thing.
0: So Jeff, you've been on Twitter for a long time. You've seen a lot of these different social models and and the ones that have been successful and the ones have not. And it's interesting. I mean, before Elon ever bossed Twitter, I mean, I think he was fairly well convinced it was a failing product, right? And when you think about how the user growth had plateaued, their inability to monetize the existing users they had relative to other platforms was not particularly great. And you mentioned something about Snowflake's ability. And again, this is an enterprise software company, but to go to zero to $2 billion in sales, I mean, Twitter was one of the fastest companies ever to go to $2 billion in sales, right? And so I guess the question here is like, I think, you know, Elon bought this in late October. He hasn't made it better. We can all be patient, but we're all using it much less. The, the reviews of the product are, are not getting better anytime soon. And he may really risk just running people off the platform. And who knows, maybe there's something else that catches lightning in a bottle. And again, I'm not going to hold my breath for that. I'm just curious, though, Jeff, is a longtime user and is someone who's very in tune with this sort of mindset. And I'm sure You have lots of friends who are close to Elon and they're all rooting them on in the background, but it's
2: not going particularly well. Well, I think what's so interesting is if you talk to people that work at SpaceX or Tesla, those are two of the best run technology companies really Ever, I mean, SpaceX is an incredibly well-run company. You you can not like Elon, but you can't argue with the success of Tesla. You just look at what it's done since it went public. I think when you buy an existing operating entity, it's very different from organically building something that you started from scratch. You know, if you think about those other companies. Uh, spacex and tesla the people inside of those companies have tremendous loyalty to him they've grown up with his playbook his operating mentality they know how he thinks Uh, i do have friends that that have worked at both of those companies and you know you you sort of follow the the legion of, of elon He inherited a group of people at Twitter that didn't necessarily march to his beat. I think that's a much tougher challenge to take on. And I hope he figures it out. I love the product. I've always been a big Twitter user. I think that the opportunities and e-commerce and payments and real-time information are amazing. But like you said, you can't have outages. It's just, uh, it's tough. And then, you know, we haven't even gotten into the side of Twitter that I think is the hardest thing to deal with, which is the political side. What is allowed? What's not allowed? I mean, it plays a role in geopolitics. We're just talking about like basic product functionality. You go up a level, there's a whole layer of things that are really complex when it comes to running a company like Twitter.
0: Let's shift over to Tesla because then Wednesday last week they had this much anticipated investor day. You know, the stock had obviously gotten very oversold from 200 in early December down to 100 in early January and back up to 200 by the time of this investor day. And it seemed to be one of a couple things that were trying to be done there. Um, Elon was trying to show the deep bench that they had. He just brought over the head of China to be his like number two here in the U.S. But it really failed, I think, to wow anybody. There weren't a lot of details about new products. It was like a big vision. And again, this was their master plan three. But I think the big headline, you know, to me, the most important thing that I see is that a big part of success in the stock market had been this margin story and had been this urging story and their ability to get leverage at the sort of scale that they've been predicting. And they finally got it in 2021. And that's why that stock was up like a thousand percent off the lows it was $1.2 trillion market cap at its highs. Well, now it's, you know, a little less than half of that and you know the earnings story is flattening out the margin story is going from 25 plus percent margins last year which in automotive is amazing okay to expected 22 percent this year and today's headline that they're cutting prices for the second time in two months on their higher end models doesn't give me confidence that they are going to be able to actually hit these kind of flattish earnings numbers and margins could be less than expected and the only thing that i learned about investing in tech stocks over the last 25 years and, and watching these bubbles kind of form and burst is like when growth stories start hitting the sorts of skids, pun intended here, that Tesla is, and you're seeing margin degradation and you're seeing price wars, you want to get the hell out of them. So I'm just curious thoughts here, because again, the idea that they had supposedly two vehicles under like sheets at this event last week for a couple hours, it didn't surprise me that the stock gapped down 8% the next day.
1: Well, you're looking for specifics, and if you had looked for specifics all along the way of Tesla and Elon Musk's journey, you might have been disappointed because I think he pulls off what is so unimaginable in the moment. So if you believe in the long-term vision, I think there actually was a lot there at Investor. He rolled out a line of executives that looked pretty good, especially when we compare it. When Jeff compares it to Twitter, he inherited those executives. At Tesla, he grew these executives organically. And it's impressive what they've been able to do in China, too. When you talk about margin degradation, yes, but it's still so much further ahead than anyone else in the field. And if we're only talking EVs, we talk about cash-burning startups or companies, public companies, Rivian and Lucid, I mean- they're building right now. They don't have the manufacturing piece figured out anywhere close to what Tesla is doing. And now they have to build and probably raise more money in a non-zero rate environment. So that is going to be really tough. Everything you just said is difficult for the short-term story, but I still don't see any massive competitor that's going to dethrone Tesla anytime soon. And we may not have seen the car, very light on specifics, but if you believe that Elon Musk pulled it off the first time. And he has such a huge lead. I think that's what the market's probably trying to price out. How much of a lead does he really have? But the more we hear about other automakers and their manufacturing issues and the amount of money they have to raise.
2: I'm on my third Tesla. I've been driving one for 10 years. I love it. But I thought, gosh, maybe I'll think about getting something else. Maybe I'll go look at the Porsche, the Mercedes, the Audi. I went and drove the Audi. Even better margins, by the way. (laughs) I went and drove the Audi and I loved it. And I asked, first of all, the range is only 220 miles. Second of all, it doesn't have high speed charging. So there, there, there's no charging network. I was up in Tahoe recently and I'm at a grocery store that has two public chargers, they're non-Tesla. There are three Tesla chargers in the charge area, always full, Superchargers. you drive in, you get your car filled up, 30 minutes. There are people sitting in Audis and Mercedes waiting for these things to open up in a grocery store parking lot. You can't drive your car. There's nothing you can do. You can plug it in, but if you literally, if you plug in the Audi, it's gonna take 80 hours to charge if you plug you it and in I, your house. You and
0: I have talked about this, this right now. He has an incredible moat. This this is the killer app. This is the the immovable moat for now, I guess, right? But again, to me, this is not about Rivian and Lucid and Boyd. This is about Ford and GM and Volkswagen and the Japanese. It's about the incumbents. And I don't know if you guys caught this opinion piece in the New York Times. This is from a columnist, Ezra Dyer, for Car and Driver, a 120-year-old car company is leaving Tesla in the dust. And talk talking about Ford. And I actually bought that Ford Mustang Mach-E in 2021. You know, Jeff, you, you made fun of me um, for it. I love that car. That <laughs> That car <laughs> wipes the door with the lower end i mean that sincerely yeah. but the issue is the charging where do you charge it And the range well, that's
1: what's the, the range
0: no the range the, the range and where to charge it all those things will be fixed that was a pillar of the bear case for tesla for years
1: are they going to fix the dealership model as well because that is something that drives me absolutely inc- crazy i mean i got a tesla a few years i think only a year ago actually you walk there, I was out within five minutes. I mean, I also got a minivan, by the way. And that, <laughs> took me, that took me a hell of a lot longer. And it was just such a frustrating process. And I think for a generation that is becoming used to paying with their phone, quick checkouts, the payments is a big part of this. And the legacy automakers still get bogged down by that. And it is just such an unpleasant experience. And then you think about how to get your car fixed as well. And Tesla has a moat there as well. I mean, that needs to improve also. But I think to Jeff's point, that moat is still incredibly wide. What's it worth, Dan? Maybe that's what you're getting at. Do you think that there is competition, right? Like if you're going to get a lease, we got a three-year lease because we thought there might be on more on the market in terms of EVs. Uh,
2: first of all, the, the click to buy is a great experience, as you mentioned, Deirdre. I just don't know how people are going to buy Ford, GM, et cetera, en masse, fully electric vehicles until they have a reliable charging network. And, you know, giving you the option to use a public charging network is not the same as knowing on a map, by the way, that's built into the vehicle, showing you exactly where you can stop along your route. How many slots are open? You walk up. I still get free charging. You drive up, plug in 30 minutes later, you're off to the races. It is such an important part of the ownership equation that, you know, yeah, the F-150 Lightning, beautiful. The A lot of these cars are, are really cool. The interiors are even nicer than Tesla's, but the reliability piece is super important. Just to be
0: really clear, in places like where you are, there's often lines for Tesla supercharging stations. It didn't work for me because I live in New York City, right? And there aren't any public charging stations there. And there are very few garages that have them and the range still stinks. But for people who basically leave their home and it's fully charged and they're going to work and they're running some errands and they're coming back. That's the majority of the next EV buyer here in America. And I think there are some things that solve that. But listen, this is a debate we're going to have for a very long time.
1: One last point that we didn't get to on Tesla is that they've done more to vertically integrate their business than any of the other automakers, legacy or EV players in terms of integrating the battery production, lithium supply. So that is going to be something that's very difficult for the other players, old and new, to catch up with. I
0: don't disagree with that. And again, you know what Jeff was just saying. About the moats. The, the, there's no shortage of them as it relates to EV. I just think of Tesla as a stock, a $600 billion market cap. And I think about just kind of some of the issues that valuation has always been one of the, I guess, pillars of the bear case here. But this might, really might be the second year in a row where some of that competition is finally starting to chip away at that profitability moat, if you will, also. So, you know, vertical integration will be great. I just think that some of the competition is probably going to play some. Catch up, if you recall, they've only sold three million cars to date, and they've already projected by what twenty thirty they're going to be selling twenty million a year, which is <laughs> a, like insane. It's just not In something. That, yes, they're not something they're ever going to do. And I'll just say this: is that if all those people out there who are calling for a recession at some point this year, I mean, you know, that and the geopolitical issues that we have with China, I know you've heard me say this at nauseum. I mean, this is a really important market that for them, from a manufacturing standpoint, from a demand standpoint, from a rare earth material standpoint. Um, so, you know, to me it's not a layup here um, but everyone knows my positioning and i really appreciate hearing from you and jeff the alternative view here so stick around when we come back deirdre and i are going to hit a few things crypto Cross River Bank member FDIC. Here was a really interesting story from the Wall Street Journalist on March 3rd. It was about Tether. This is the third largest crypto digital asset or whatever you want to call it uh, that exists out there. Crypto companies behind Tether use falsified documents and shell companies to get bank account Tether holdings and related crypto broker obscured identities documents show. And this article is really interesting and it's talking about some counterparties in China and really just about something that is meant to be stable and transparent and all the inner workings behind it and those trying to transact on it. And there's a whole host of issues there. This is about capital flight with China. This is about a lot of the pillars of, I guess you would say, the existence for crypto in general. And I know Deirdre, this goes back to, this was like a bang up interview you did on TechCheck. It was the summer, I think it was July of 2021. You had the CTO of on your show and you were just really coming at them hard about these transparency issues and hard about the collateral and hard about all this stuff. And it's funny, you were doing it at a time where there were very few, I think, out there, at least in the crypto space, who wanted to ask the tough questions. And maybe it was part of the thing that we're in this mania and the market cap of all the cryptos, maybe it just gotten over to like 2 trillion or something. And it was like kind of it arrived. This is a real asset class. But when you think about what's happened since then, you know, I mean, in the year and a half or so, and you see how unstable many of these stable coins um, have proven to be. And there's been fraud and no shortage of these staking companies and, all, and the list goes on and on and on. I'm just curious, like, what was your take? We're reading this story the other day because it was pretty explosive.
1: My take was more of the same. This is a stable coin is supposed to instill confidence. You're supposed to believe that one stable coin is worth one US dollar. Why do we believe that? Because the market says so. We don't actually have any evidence that it is backed one-to-one and you know the executives there if pressed will admit that it's not backed one-to-one but it's backed by things it's essentially a money market fund it's backed by treasuries by short-term debt they won't tell you what that debt is where it comes from it's funny when i hear people think that i ask tough questions because there's two ways i did crypto interviews during this whole mania when i started out i started asking questions that i thought were really smart i did not get anywhere with those questions then i just started asking really really simple questions and that's when I everything fell apart. That's when interviews would fall apart. And I would say, well, I'm not trying to be you know, a jerk here by asking these tough questions. I'm just asking really simple things. And that's where it started with Tether. It took me a really long time to understand what it actually was, like a really long time. I remember I had Jason Calacanis. I was going back and forth with him on Twitter and he was saying it was the black swan of the crypto industry. And I thought, okay, if it is, what is this thing? What's a stable coin? What does it mean to be pegged to the US dollar when there's not a US dollar behind you and then some I spoke to someone and they said this is just a money market fund and I thought oh okay this makes sense it's a money market fund well what's in this money market fund. And no one could tell me that. Then I got on the live stream with the Tether executives and least of all, could they tell me anything about what it was backed by? So I think the Wall Street Journal is another story in this progression of, we don't know what the hell Tether is. We don't know what backs it. And there's really not a lot of reason for people to have confidence in it, but it remains because people need it to get in and out of the crypto market.
0: It's interesting as you and I were just talking about this. When you think of now what the, the total market cap is for crypto, it's Bitcoin at 430 billion, Ethereum at 190, and then it's Tether Binance coin, which has to be kind of going the way of the dodo, I would assume, kind of soon. And then this US dollar coin, USD coin, which is also backed by Coinbase. I mean, those combined are about 150 billion and they're three, four, and five as far as market cap's concerned. And behind that is XRP, the Ripple thing that has obviously had no shortage of issues. And when when you think about just the landscape, I mean, it really is Bitcoin and Ethereum and then the stable coins and, and that are used to obviously, like you say, transact for a whole host of reasons. But without that transparency, without the regulation, and I think without truly knowing what those coins are backed by, I mean, they're going to continue to operate under this sort of skepticism, I guess I would say. And so, you know, you've been doing it for two years now. The Wall Street Journal won't stop. And, and this leads me to kind of another guy who I think is a great journalist. He's been pretty brilliant Crypto skeptic, and it's Joe Wizensall over there at Bloomberg, and he's got the Odd Lots podcast. And you know, he just had Brian Armstrong on his pod. And you know, one of the things that I find so interesting about Joe is that he is probably one of the early reasons why I started paying attention to Bitcoin. He used to be um, at Business Insider. This was back in like 2013 and 14, and he used to write about it all the time. I think he was like crypto curious. It was this new sort of thing. A lot of smart people in finance and tech we're talking about it, not you and I, we didn't buy it. And anything that you had bought back then would have been 1000X or whatever, but he's also been just a really, really smart skeptic of late and so I'm just curious like your thoughts because Brian Armstrong I think is meant to be this pretty low key OG sort of crypto guy, heads down, always building in the big crypto winters. You know, there was a comment that he made on the pod. he was surprised that in this inflationary environment that Bitcoin didn't act better. I'm just curious what your take was, I'm not sure if you in the pod yet. Listen, these are the sorts of things that I think help. If Brian is going the opposite way here, you know what I mean? And railing against all the detractors, it's probably not helping the cause to grow this asset class and further legitimize it.
1: Well, here's how I see Coinbase. It's the most legitimate of all these businesses. It's the most regulated. It's based here in the US. You can actually look at the balance sheets and it has quarterly reports. So if you're going to make any bet on crypto and exchange, save, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin coins, actually. Coinbase is a good bet, but does that mean it's a good business? No, it means it's not a very good business at all because there's all of these offshore exchanges like FTX previously, like Binance now that get to operate without that transparency, without that regulation that can do so much more and earn so much more on things like options and derivatives and shady things that we don't really know about because it doesn't have to be transparent in the same way. So how does Coinbase make its money? Okay, on fees, you know, is something that Jim Cheno says that cannot last forever. You talk to the Binance CEO, and he's going to undercut till the end, (laughs) till there's no more business left. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending if you're long or short, Coinbase just hasn't been able to diversify very well. They're still relying on those fees. And in a crypto winter, that's a tough place to be. If it can survive it, maybe it will be okay. But again, there's all these offshore exchanges that are able to make so much money and then undercut Brian Armstrong on those fees. So it's a boring business is, is at the end of the day, and it's kind of actually the benefit is that it has a large amount of cash and deposits cash and cash equivalent. So it's able to now earn interest on that. So this is not this disruptive business that we once thought it was. Maybe it will be in the future. I'm not saying that. But right now, it's kind of boring and doesn't earn as much money as some of the other unregulated exchanges.
0: It is pretty astounding when you talk about their ability to earn. 2021, during that frenzy, the company did almost $8 billion in sales. And on gap net income, they had $3.6 This year, it's expected to be maybe a little more than $3 billion in sales. And they're expected to lose close to... $1 billion. So when you think about that, and, and then you think about the fee compression that is coming to a theater near you, a la our friend at Wall Street Cynic on the Twitter, that would be Jim Chenos. Um, it's hard to see. Even with the current like $13, $14 billion enterprise value. And again, to your point, like they have a lot of cash on the balance sheet here, but doesn't seem as interesting when you think about the potential for you know lower cost transaction providers. We talked about this a little bit last week as it related to OpenSea. There was an article in the information that was talking about this new company called blur which basically was no fee nft trading i mean think about that right and they've basically taken like a disproportionate amount of open seas market share since they launched and they're incentivizing people to trade on the platform again with a coin a blur coin or something like that so you know this goes back to you know jeff bezos famous saying your margin is my opportunity and it seems like that you know trading three four percent in and out on a crypto on coinbase a very centralized platform seems like somebody else's opportunity
1: yeah and and then when you think about all the attempts that they have had to diversify and make money in different ways such as interest-bearing accounts at Coinbase or staking they've all like the interest-bearing account turned out too good to be true and the regulators came down on it they were actually you could say in hindsight lucky that they weren't able because that's kind of what sunk BlockFi and some of the others as they played fast and loose with those deposits it would have been harder for Coinbase to do so but it just feels like every new business that they try to diversify into gets smacked down and Brian Armstrong would probably argue you, and it's a very good point, that the U.S. could be left behind. I don't know if anyone cares. I don't know if Gary Gensler and co. care if the U.S. is left behind in terms of crypto because there's been so much damage in its way.
0: We'll put um, a transcript of that podcast with Joe Wienertal, Tracy Alloway, and Brian Armstrong in the show notes. It's a really good listen. And I guess, listen, he seems pretty sober in, in an industry where there's been anything but that over the last few years. All right, dear Bosa, she is the illustrious host of CNBC's Tech Check. And I am so fortunate. I think our listeners are so fortunate to have her join us here on OK Computer. So thanks so much for joining us again this week.
1: I feel fortunate to be here. So thank you for having me again.
0: If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at